Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Justin Trudeau, for the third time, will meet with the Parliamentary Commissioner of Conflict of Interest and Ethics. This time it's Mario Dion, and Mr. Dion is investigating Mr. Trudeau over the decision toward the WE charity, as you know, a contract to administer a federal student grant program worth more than $900 million. Trudeau's family members received hundreds of thousands of dollars for speaking fees from the organization, and Trudeau's eventual quote was, I made a mistake in not recusing myself immediately from the discussions given our family's history. I'm sincerely sorry about not having done that. End quote. So I found that very interesting, that the Prime Minister would in fact apologize for not having recused himself from cabinet discussions about awarding the WE contract. That, to me, speaks volumes. So Mr. Dion is going to be investigating the Prime Minister now twice already. Mr. Trudeau has been found in violation of the Conflict of Interest Act. The first such occurrence was after uh, Trudeau accepted a vacation of the private island of the Aga Khan, which the Prime Minister said he saw no issues with. He didn't think there was a problem. The Aga Khan was a friend of the family, he said. In fact, the Aga Khan was a friend of Mr. Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father which uh, came into consideration, uh, as far as the decision was concerned, by the Conflict of Interest Commissioner at the time, and who found Mr. Trudeau in violations of Sections 11, 12, and 21 of the Conflict of Interest Act. And the Commissioner was Mary Dawson, and Ms. Dawson joins us. On the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, she, by the way, will be appearing before the Parliamentary Ethics Committee, I'm told, on Monday of next week. Ms. Dawson, thank you very much for taking the time. appreciate talking to you. Oh, hello. Uh, listen, I'm having a lot of trouble getting uh, the sound here. Is there any way to make it a little louder from your end? I don't know. I'm not in the studio. I'm at home. They'll do what they can in the studio. Is that any better? No. I, I'm, I have to really stress to hear what you're saying, so I'll do the best I can, I guess. Thank you. We'll do what we can at our end. Um, when Mr. Trudeau said, and he said, I made a mistake in not recusing myself immediately, from the discussions given our family's history, I'm sincerely sorry about not having done that. What does that speak of to you? Well, I mean, there is a there is actually um, a provision in the uh, Conflict of Interest and Ethics uh, Act which says you uh, you must recuse yourself, and if you if you um, don't comply with that, you you've actually offended the act on that particular uh, section. And I take it that should not have been a mystery to the Prime Minister. Sorry? That should not have been a mystery to Mr. Trudeau. Well, um, uh, anyway, I don't, uh, you know, I can't really comment on that. It, 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 this thing is before the conflict of interest, the current conflict of interest in Ethics Commissioner, and there's lots of facts to be delved out there, but there's certainly a couple of sections in the Act that uh, uh, one uh, would want to take a look at. Ms. Dawson, how does an investigation or a review of a member of Parliament's actions concerning possible conflict of interest and or ethical behavior, how is that conducted? What did you do as Commissioner? 
Well, um, it begins either with a complaint uh, from a member of parliament or from a senator uh, brought to the office, and uh, they have to identify the sections that they think were um, not complied with and uh, the facts that would suggest they'd not been complied with. Uh, that's one way of uh, something coming. The other way, of course, is the uh, commissioner can self-initiate if uh, if he's got, uh, he or she has got information from um, other sources that suggest there's a problem. So once that, uh, so there has to be reasonable grounds to begin an exam, and it's called an examination. It, it's, the word investigation is a confusing word because uh, quite often one refers to investigating something before an examination has been instituted. But uh, in any event, so the uh, commissioner would get the uh, request, and assuming that it was um, a legitimate one, uh, the the process would begin. Uh, and the first thing that would happen is the person that's alleged to have contravened the act would be notified. And uh, given uh, about uh, a month or something to to respond with either a documentary response if they wish, and then they would also be invited in for an interview. Usually it would start with the interview of the person alleged to have contravened. And then there'd be a series of um, other interviews with uh, other witnesses that uh, very much um, in a court process form, but it's in camera. Uh, so it's not public. Uh, the... Um, but there's a court reporter who takes all the uh, records of everything that was said in the in the meetings, and that can go on for some period of time, depending on how complex the matter is. And uh, then ultimately, um, a decision is uh, drafted up and um, released. Uh, it's sent to the prime minister. It's tabled in the House of Commons, although I don't think that's mandatory. And um, it's uh, made public generally. On the uh, on the website of the of the uh, commissioner's office. All right. Now you found Mr. Trudeau to have been in violation of sections 11, 12, and 21 of the Conflict of Interest Act. Specifically, what was he in violation of? What did he do wrong? Well, he accepted effectively. Section 11 is the most uh, commonly requested information about. It's the the gift uh, provision. And uh, effectively, he uh, received, uh, in, 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 the judgment, in my judgment at the time, a gift from um, somebody, a gift of a holiday on a private island. And um, so Section 11 was a fairly obvious one. Uh, and um, so I, I simply found that that had been contravened. Now, there is an exception for friends, and I also uh, looked into the uh, background of that and concluded that for the purposes of the Act, uh, the Aga Khan did not constitute what I would consider to be um, a friend for the purposes of the Act. And when it comes to Section 12, what was that about? Section 12, let me just remember. Section 12 was, um, oh, this is the travel. Uh, yeah, he, he accepted travel over to the island on... Um, on a private plane, and that's that's the direct prohibition under the Conflict of Interest Act. There there are some exceptions to that if um, it was uh, considered to be exceptional circumstances. And as as you can see from the report uh, on the Aga Khan case, um, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau argued that there were exceptional circumstances because it's hard to get to the island, but. 
uh, I concluded um, he always he, his, his circumstances are always sort of exceptional, so it wasn't exceptional. And uh, the other way is if you get prior approval from the commissioner, and uh, he hadn't got prior approval. So basically, uh, there was a contravention of that traveling on uh, non-commercial or chartered uh, air, aircraft, uh, Section 12. Um, Section 21 of the Act that you found he contravened, again, we see the recusing issue showing up. Could you explain that to us, please? Um, yes, uh, there there was a whole bunch of facts uh, that I looked at in that case, and there was um, the, the Aga Khan. Part of the problem there was the Aga Khan was actually working with the government with a proposal to be funded by the government or or to do a proposal um, a project jointly with the two of them. And uh, there was um, one discussion that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau took part in that uh, was dealing with that issue. So um, I found that he'd contravened that. He had not recused himself from that discussion. And the federal government had, I believe, uh, already awarded, was it $330 million to the Aga Khan's foundation uh, previous to that meeting in, uh, in, the, in the Bahamas. And the previous year, I'm going from memory here, $47 million. So there was... There was real reason for the prime minister not to become engaged because even though the, the Aga Khan was not a lobbyist, a registered lobbyist, his foundation is. Yes, I mean, there was definitely a benefit that uh, could go to uh, his, his organization. Um, I have to ask you the, 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 the first question again. I'm going to phrase it a little differently. And, and so my, my, my question here is... Um, are you surprised Mr. Trudeau is again under investigation by the Conflict of Interest Commissioner, Ethics Commissioner, and this time along with Mr. Morneau, given his previous experiences with you and Mr. Dion? Um, yes, I was a little surprised. I'd be surprised uh, of anybody... Um who had none of the uh, contraventions uh, or, or alleged contraventions are, are exactly the same. One, one involved basically the gift provisions. Another one uh, involved um, something that was inappropriate. And uh, then this third one, um, this third one is uh, a, a matter of uh, family or himself potentially benefiting from uh, some contract um, that was entered into. So, they're they're all different situations, but they're um, they're they're all situations where um, I think I, I think the, the prime minister felt he was well, except maybe the Aga Khan vacation that was sort of different. But on the other two, the Lavalin and the We, um, he felt he was doing good things, <laughs> and I think they just. Uh, seemed to be a little bit of a of a blindness uh, to the possibility that there was any kind of issue there although uh, he did recognize that there was a recusal, recusal issue in this later case um, but you know that's for the current uh, ethics commissioner to to sort out um, just what the facts all are on that, that you know it'll take a bit of sorting out to figure out what all goes on there 
I just have one more question for you, Ms. Dawson. Uh, when you're appearing before the, why are you appearing before the Ethics Committee of Parliament? You, uh, you know, this I wish I knew for sure. I was invited to go, and I, I you know, I, I, I'm respectful of Parliament, and I thought, well, I'll go if they want me to answer some questions. But again, I, you know, it's not my job to, um, to really opine on the outcome of this current issue. But I think they probably want maybe some uh, background on how, similar to what you're asking, on how the case, how the act is uh, administered, or it was in my time anyway. I Honestly, uh, I wish I knew. <laughs> Ms. Dawson, thank you very much uh, for the time, and thanks for putting up with our technological shortcomings. Well, thank you very much. All the best to Good you. Good luck. Bye. Bye-bye. Mary Dawson, the former Conflict of Interest Commissioner and Ethics Commissioner, about Prime Minister Trudeau, Charlie Angus joins us, NDP ethics critic, member of Parliament, and a member of the uh, Ethics Committee. So, Charlie, uh, let's start with the with the uh, with the former Commissioner Mary Dawson. Why is she appearing before your committee? Well, Roy, uh, we've been spending a lot of time this summer in various parliamentary committees trying to get answers on how this whole we debacle went down. But what's concerned me from the get-go is this is the third investigation in the Prime Minister's office of breaking the Conflict of Interest Act. His uh, finance minister, Bill Morneau, is in deep, deep water right now for breaking the Conflict of Interest Act. Uh, So we're going to start some hearings uh, to actually look at how the law gets applied uh, in the prime minister's office. Do they have checks and balances? Do they actually pay attention to their legal obligations? So Mary Dawson was the former commissioner, uh, and she uh, did come forward with the ruling, uh, the Aga Khan ruling, which was the very first, your listeners probably remember it more, as the Billionaire Island uh, scandal. That was the first time a sitting prime minister had been found guilty in a conflict of interest uh, case. So Mary uh, Dawson has been invited. We've asked uh, the former lobbying commissioner, Karen Shepard, who's an extraordinary, uh, was an extraordinary person when she ran that uh, portfolio. She has declined, but we're looking forward to hearing what Mary Dawson has to say. All right. Charlie, uh, Global News reported uh, earlier in the week that We Charity hired a PR firm to help with students' service grants in French-speaking Canada. Now, that was the the grants that Mr. Trudeau had insisted, the public service had informed him, that only we was skilled to carry out. And here we have news that we went out and hired another company to administer the issue in French-speaking Canada. What do we make of this? Well, I think, you know, for a national program, it was obvious that uh, we... Uh, was well established in high schools, in high schools in English Canada. Um, this program I thought was supposed to be for university students, but we'll set that aside for a moment. But they have very little strength in, in French Canada. So again, if we're talking about a national program, Roy, like anybody in your listeners who've ever dealt with Ottawa knows that when it comes to national programs, you have to be able to deliver in Quebec, in French, as well as in English Canada. And so the idea that they're hiring a PR firm, of all things, uh, to me is like, like, who's zooming who here? This is, 
this is this is asked raising more questions. So it goes back to the prime minister when the prime minister said, you know, they their first argument was we talked to so many groups or we had so many groups, but we was the only one. But then nobody else seems to have been, you know, all the other groups that should have been talked to weren't talked to. Then the prime minister said, you know, it wasn't a case of anybody else being able to do it. Either we did it or the program didn't go ahead. So it brings us back to what was the prime minister's judgment about this program, this you know, this thing of getting young people involved in some kind of volunteer thing in the middle of a pandemic when university students really needed help paying their rent and, and their bills like everybody else. Yeah. Charlie, do you have any lingering thoughts about Mr. Trudeau's testimony before the Finance Committee? Uh, I, I thought Mr. Trudeau's testimony was problematic in a number of areas. The idea that he was the one who demanded due diligence. He was the one who said, whoa, there may be a perception here uh, of conflict of interest. Well, we're not dealing with perceptions. We're dealing with the law. So he was aware that questions were going to be asked, and he ignored it. He then tells us that it was him who sent it back to his civil servants and said, do due diligence and make sure this is okay. That's May 8th. Uh, From what we know, we was already spending money on May 5th. Um, and I know, Roy, it's in the middle of a pandemic, and a lot of money had to get out the door quickly. And I've defended the government a number of times, and people have asked about how money goes out the door in the middle of a pandemic. We had to do a lot of stuff. But this one doesn't add up. The prime minister is saying stop and do due diligence. When on April 23rd, Mark Kilberger told his people, we've been told we've got the deal. May 5th, they're already spending money. May 8th, the prime minister tells us, I was the one who said do due diligence. Uh, if that was his line from the beginning, he would have said that from the beginning. I, I just, it seems like they're trying to, to rewrite the story, but there's too, many, there's too many holes in it right now for that kind of line to, to pass mustard. You know, Charlie, I kept thinking, this man has a non-sequential calendar. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 it, when you're supposed to be the most powerful man in the country. I guess they they make the calendar work for you. But yeah. again, the question was was did we need this? I I, I think of it, Roy. Is I understand. I understand, Charlie. I've got. I have to cut it because of the time. But I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. No problem. Take care. Talk to you soon, Charlie Angus, NDP ethics critic. Terrible situation in uh, in Beirut, massive explosion, 300,000 people lost their homes in the city, which has existed, as I said, for 5,000 years. And Lebanon is already experiencing a critical monetary and economic crisis. Their currency, the pound, lost 60% just in the month of July. If you can help, you can get in touch with, um, with the Islamic... Uh, uh, Relief Canada with IslamicReliefCanada.org. You can also get in touch with the Lebanese Red Cross at supportlrc.app or the Canadian Red Cross at donate.redcross.ca. We're joined by Mr. Alex Harron, and uh, Mr. Harron is a restaurant owner in St. John, New Brunswick. His restaurant is Let's Hummus. He's originally from Lebanon, and he heard the Beirut explosion in real time as he and his wife in Canada were speaking with her sister, his wife's sister in Beirut, as the explosion occurred. Mr. Harron, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, a terrible, terrible reality in in, uh, in Beirut. 
your your former home city, you must feel, and with your family still there, you must feel heartsick over this. Thank you. Yes, actually, it's a, it's a tough situation. We're still going through the situation, and uh, unfortunately, the numbers are still increasing. I'm, I'm just following the news every day, and uh, uh, it's it's a disaster back home. That's that's what I can say. You know. Yeah. Can you tell us exactly how you found out there was a conversation going on between your wife and her sister, your wife here in Canada, her sister in Beirut? How did you how did you yeah. hear what was going yeah, on? My, my wife is the only one here in Canada. All her family are back home in Beirut and they're all in the greater Beirut area. So she's got her parents and all of her brothers and sisters. They're all married and uh, and she was with one of her sisters live on a FaceTime conversation. She spends the whole day just talking to her family, one one after the other. So she was with one of her sisters FaceTime, and uh, we we like we literally saw the reaction. We literally heard the explosion and glass breaking, and then then it was disconnected. The line was disconnected for for about. Uh, we couldn't reach them for about 15 minutes until until my mother-in-law answered and we started getting information and understanding what's going on that must have been a terrifying moment it was it was a scary uh, 20 minutes of my life and my wife's life you know yeah we were just ah. panicking my wife was just uh, she lost it for 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 20 25 minutes until until her mother answered the phone, and we knew everybody was okay. And uh, uh, unfortunately, we lost uh, close friends of, of the family. But uh, her close family, brothers, sisters, uh, grandmother, everybody's okay. And uh, uh, and unfortunately, they all lost their houses. You know, you know I was thinking about that. Uh, Beirut's population is estimated, Greater Beirut, at 2.2 million. Right. 300,000 people's homes are destroyed. Many, perhaps most, cannot be rebuilt. What are you hearing about that? Well, um, like, let's say out of the six family members that we have down there, everybody's loss is different than the others. Some of them, they just lost windows and doors, and some of them is a total loss, you know? So uh, it's it's tough, you know? There's nothing we can do. All we can do is is help financially we cannot be there you know uh, we're trying our best to help financially to 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 at, at least secure them with with a place to live now uh they're they're like believe it or not out of the six family they're all now living in two of the houses that they used to have they used to have six houses so the whole six families are now in two houses that's that's the situation in beirut now uh, they're they're trying to they're trying to limit like like uh, anybody who can help in a space in their ha- house or in their home they would accept more people of the family in their right homes, you know and, and Lebanon was already in an economic crisis with the pound having lost 60 percent of its value just in the month of July in, in real terms how hard was life before Tuesday and how much more difficult do you think it may become? going forward since this cataclysmic explosion. But Islamic Relief estimates half of the country lives below the poverty line, and 35% of Lebanese people are unemployed. Those those are frightening, alarming statistics. Right, right. They've been suffering for the past uh, year or more. 
you know believe it or not uh, some people are not able not able to to eat meat and chicken in Lebanon for the past year you know yeah. it's that bad when when the uh, Lebanese pound lost 60% the prices went up dramatically uh, some people are not even aware of this. Uh, a kilogram of beef in Lebanon now, raw kilogram of beef is, uh, it, before the explosion, is 120 U.S. dollars. Oh, my. You know? Not many people would afford that. Uh, um, salaries in Lebanon, they vary between 300 and $800, you know. So the majority of the Lebanese population, they don't make $500 a month, you know. And a kilogram of, of beef is 120 so basically, eighty percent of the population they cannot afford it. <laughs> yeah, so they that's... were already living through tough times and uh, horrible times, and this was the knockdown, that explosion. You know, stunning, absolutely stunning. To the the numbers are numbers, but when you think of the real impact on real people, that is what what just makes your heart sick. And and uh, in in the in a country of six point eight million people, uh, mm-hmm. Lebanon also accepted 1.5 million Syrian refugees Correct. who are now living in Lebanon. Correct, yeah. Absolutely, this is, this is absolutely true, yeah. Now, they're, they're not in a good situation. The last thing they needed was this, you know. Yeah. Uh, they were already uh, fighting for, for, for their food. They're not fighting only for, you know, they're fighting just to, to feed the, their families, you know. And now this happened... Some of them are in the streets. Some of them are living in tents. Uh, not everybody can get help, you know, from from relatives. You know, yeah. so it's it's really tough. It's really uh, it's not an easy situation. Uh, I encourage everybody to help, whoever can help. Anything helps these days, you know. Absolutely. Uh, I I started a GoFund, uh, trying to raise money, you know, to help. My close families and 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 everybody, you know. So if if we all do that, maybe we can do something to help these people. How do we get to your GoFundMe uh, effort? It's it's through our Facebook uh, account, Let's Hummus. Okay, so the restaurant is Let's Hummus, and if you go to the right. Let's Hummus Facebook account, it'll take you to the GoFundMe effort. Right, right. We advertise the GoFund, and we're uh, giving even for the next six months five percent of our. Uh, net income from the both locations. They're going to the Lebanese Red Cross, and there is another uh, uh, association who are trying to help uh, people with blankets and pillows in the meantime, you know, because th- th- there is literally people are not even, they don't have a place to sleep, you know? Yeah, it's just, it's they absolutely... Don't blanket. Yeah. They don't have a blanket to, to, to cover, you know? It's, it's that bad, you know? It's cataclysmic. And there's uh, IslamicReliefCanada.org, also the Lebanese Red Cross at supportlrc.app, and the Canadian Red Cross, where you can donate to redcross.ca, or it's donate.redcross.ca. Um, Mr. Harron, also, uh, just to, to wrap up, there was a, a, a protest uh, in, in Beirut today. People very angry over the situation, very angry at the uh, at the government and uh, what they consider to be significant corruption. Um, the country went through a 15-year civil war, which was extremely difficult on the population. Do you, do you have concerns about, about uh, ongoing uh, unrest and anger redeveloping in, in Lebanon? Absolutely. 
this is something that I've uh, been hearing since I was uh, a kid, you know. Uh, I lived all my life in Canada and my dad was, uh, he used to follow the news and uh, this, this is going for forever. This has been like that forever. And uh, uh, there, is, there is a political problem in, 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 in Lebanon and it's, it's, it was never solved, you see. And uh, after 15 years of civil war, uh, everything was rebuilt by uh, uh, one of the prime ministers uh, in the past. And Beirut was beautiful again. I went and I visited in 2009, 2008. And now, all of a sudden, everything is gone again, you know? Yeah. It's, it's just been a... Again. After, after 15 or 20 years of rebuilding Beirut, a single bomb wipes everything away. Mr. Harron, thank you so much for joining us, taking the time uh, to explain and share with our listeners across the country uh, your personal experience and your family's experience. It's a blessing that no one in your family, uh, direct family, lost their lives, but you lost friends, and that's a terrible experience. Condolences to you, sir, and thank thank you. you so much for talking to us. No, thank you. Thank you. All the very best. Alex Harron joining us, his uh, restaurant in St. John is called Let's Hummus. And again, you can uh, support relief efforts through IslamicReliefCanada.org, the Lebanese Red Cross at supportlrc.app, and the Canadian Red Cross at donate.redcross.ca. We're joined by Dr. Anna Banerjee. She's a pediatric infectious diseases specialist at the University of Toronto. Dr. Banerjee, thank you very much for the time. And uh, I'm looking at a global news story where you're quoted as saying, by and large, my impression is that schools reflect the community and schools don't necessarily amplify the community. Anytime you take a bunch of people and you put them in a closed space together, it increases the risk of transmission. What are we looking at? What are your, what's your feeling about schools reopening as the premier? You just heard him say he says he wants to have happen and is determined to make happen. Well, thank you for inviting me on your show. Um, I think it's a very difficult balance, and uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We've been told for the past several months to stay at home. Everyone's complied, and everyone stayed at home. And now suddenly, in a few weeks, we have to put children in a in a situation that, for many pe- people, is perceived as high risk. And uh, so you can understand why parents are worried, um, you know, especially when, you know, we've been hiding at home for, for all this time. Um, do I think that uh, when you're looking at school openings, we're trying to balance uh, school openings with not school openings. And, you know, the problem is that children are not learning. Some children need structure. They, they, some of them can't learn very well online. There are huge mental health issues going on with COVID, with depression, anxiety, uh, isolation, increased thoughts of suicide. There are impacts to the economy where, you know, parents have to stay home because they have to take care of their kids. There's no daycare. So that, that goes into the equation as well. We know that children have much milder illness. Um, and uh, I don't know if they're less likely to spread the infections, but some of the studies say so. Um, but the, the problem is that there's nothing we can do that is not risk-free. And parents can't say, you know, what parents want is really to, to send the kids to school and have it be perfectly safe. And it's, it's not likely to be perfectly safe. However, there are things that you could do to reduce the risk. And again, my concern is not really for the younger kids where most of them have 
minimal symptoms like a cold or no symptoms at all. My concern is more the spread from the the children, the younger children, to uh, the teachers and community spread, uh, as well as some of the older kids that, uh, you know, some of them, will, most of them will get a, a cold and then pass it, pass it over really quickly, but some of them will have some more longer-term uh, health issues. But again, in Canada, no child has died uh, from COVID, uh, you know, with, with in the past five months because of COVID. So what are we thinking? What has worked? I mean, physical distancing has worked. We've done an incredible job across Canada. We Cohorting could be something that works, but I think it, it might be difficult to keep a group of 15 kids away from another group of 15 kids if they have friends in the other group. And teenagers will be teenagers. They probably will want to associate with people, with yeah. people they want to associate with. Uh, we know that masks work. Um, and, you know, I think we have this thing saying grade four and up. I think that basically anyone where it's age appropriate, where a child can wear a mask, uh, you know, and not fiddle with it, um, where, you know, even younger children can wear masks. And so we know that the masks seem to work, the hand hygiene, the cough, but I think really uh, the physical distancing. So what, what do we do to minimize the risk? We wear the masks. We do the physical distancing. I support reducing class sizes and um, and cohorting as much as possible. So, and I think it might mean being creative, using the gym, using auditoriums, maybe churches, other places that are open to separate the kids out and and uh, to make sure that there's enough teachers to do that. Um, I think if someone is compromised, someone at home is compromised or a child or a teacher is compromised, I think until we know what's going to happen, it's probably better that they stay home for the first month or two or maybe the first ter- term. And and for those kids with a family member who's compromised, maybe they should be doing the online or other forms of learning. So really, I think the emphasis is focusing on the vulnerable people. Get a flu shot. Um, you know, what, you don't want to have a... Yeah, because we have, the, we have the regular flu season coming up That's too, right. don't we? That's right. Um, and so, and anyone, any child who gets sick should stay at home, um, you know, whether it's diarrhea or runny nose. And I think they should stay at home for a longer period of time, maybe at least a week from beginning to end, or let, three let, days after their symptoms end. You know, Dr. Um, Banerjee, let me ask you this. Uh, there are different models, different uh, approaches from different provinces. In Ontario, elementary students... Uh, back at school full-time in a few weeks' time, and uh, they will remain in the same group of classmates and teachers for the full day, if possible. So that's cohorting. And students from grades four and up will be asked to wear masks. Now, across the country, in British Columbia, students will not be required to wear masks, but will also be cohorted as much as possible. And and kids in the province had returned to school already in June on a part-time basis, and they had only two cases of virus reported. So when I put all of that together and I hear the Premier speak and I hear the various education ministers and the public health officials speak about policy and provincial policies, I wonder whether we're really addressing things the way we should. I know we have to do that on a provincial level, but doesn't it ultimately come down to each individual school? Uh, I think it comes down to the municipalities trying to do their best to try to find space as well as in the individual schools trying to find space and addressing how they can best uh, serve their students and also for families to make their individual decisions as far as their risk tolerance. And some families right now are completely risk adverse 
and others are saying, well, it's a mild illness. I'm going to send my kid to school, and you know, you know, we're going to just get it over with. So it's it, there's a whole bunch of different groups of people that are making decisions based on their risk tolerance and their resources. Are you satisfied with what you've heard from provincial governments, from uh, you know the, the the programs and the approaches that have been laid down? Uh, as, a, as as the pediatrician, infectious diseases specialist, are you satisfied that it's being done generally? I mean, there's so many moving parts. Uh, generally satisfied that it's being done responsibly? I think that it's really hard to find a perfect um, a perfect policy because we really don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if it's going to surge up or if it's going to stay stable or go down. And so I think in general, people are doing the best they can do. I think that uh, having more funding so that we can reduce class sizes would be something that could help to allow the physical distancing because you have if you have 35 kids in one classroom it's almost impossible but i think and then i think that the government really should pay for the proper resources to be put in place because managing surge surges or outbreaks or shutting down the economy is much more expensive than than um for adequately resourcing the schools now. So I think long-term, uh, I would like, I think it would be good to see smaller class sizes. But again, as long as I think we're flexible, we see what happens, we, we ramp up as far as, uh, you know, protection, infant, infection control protection measures, or we ramp down, I think it's really important that we, we adjust and we're flexible based on what we see is happening. Okay, can I ask you just one more question? Sure. There are international examples of schools reopening, and I'm looking now particularly over to Europe and Northern Europe, uh, Denmark, Finland, uh, Norway, um, and I believe they've had some relative success. Is there value to us looking internationally and looking how other countries have handled returning kids to school, or is that just not in the cards? I think there's value into looking at everything and looking because we've never been down this path before. We've never sent kids back to school during this kind of pandemic uh, before. So if there are people who have done things and either things are under control or they have to shut the schools down again or if there's outbreaks, that's something that we can learn. That's evidence. Just like we know in the States and Brazil and India, uh, COVID is surging uh, for multiple reasons. So we know it's possible for it to surge again. But then again, when we look at Scandinavia, the fact that things are under control, that's all reassuring. So I think we need to look at the evidence and be prepared to respond one way or the other. Dr. Banerjee, good talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. Thank you. All the best. Dr. Anna Banerjee, Pediatric Infectious Diseases Specialist at the University of Toronto. Global News ran a, uh, a news story, which I found fascinating. Coronavirus conspiracy spreading at alarming rates across Canada, experts say. Well, Angus Bridgman is a Ph.D. candidate in political science at McGill University. He's co-author of the study published on COVID-19 misinformation and its impact on public health. Uh, and uh, viral anti-mask, anti-vaccine messaging on social media is a case in point. See, I know some of you are already getting irritated. Angus Bridgman joins me, the story co-author uh, and uh, native of Winnipeg, where's our great radio station, CJOB. 
where you, which you used to listen to, eh, I guess, when you were in Winnipeg? Hi, Roy. Yeah, uh, all the time when I was younger. Good answer. And I, and I know you did. I know you did. Listen, I enjoyed our conversation off the air, and I think it's important that we bring it to the air. And let's start with this one. So you did the study, and it's it's detailed, and it's well done, and it's pe- something people should be aware of. And and, it, and and we get to the issue of misinformation on social media, and everyone seems to know someone who has informed, uh, misinformed someone else or who has misinformed information. And what does that do? Just keep pushing the the misinformation further and further and further down the line, absorbing more and more people, right? Yeah, absolutely. So not just everyone knows one person, but these, these views are widely shared uh, amongst Canadians. Depending on the estimate, you know, our study has one, but there's been numerous studies kind of looking at the prevalence of misinformation around uh, particularly the corona- coronavirus, but other other things as well. But somewhere between 40 and 50% of Canadians have one or more kind of misperceptions about the virus. Um, so th- this is, you know, an enormous population, um, and it does spread. Uh, and really what our study is showing is that it's social media and those who spend a lot of time on social media who are the most vulnerable to sort of uh, seeing these uh, some form of misinformation and then internalizing it. You know, if it, uh, I'll put it to you this way. I, I'm like anybody else. I go on social media and I see something that I like or something that I agree with or something that fits into my paradigm, I'm probably going to pay more attention to it than something that doesn't. Uh, Except when I'm preparing my show. When I'm preparing my program, I I tend to go the opposite direction, getting as much information as I possibly can from all perspectives. But you found that 16% of Canadians use social media as their primary source of information, uh, and that's COVID-19? Yes, that's that's for wow. COVID nineteen. Uh, but a wide range of Canadians are using social media as their, uh, as a as maybe not the only source, but a primary or the primary source. So what that means is, rather than checking uh, CBC, Global News, CTV, your local paper, uh, you log on to Twitter or Facebook, and you go, oh, what are the top stories of the day? And you just look at your feed and you scroll down and you kind of absorb information that way. Uh, and there's a, a large number, an increasing number of Canadians who are, who are using that um, to, to get their news. And there's just, there is a, a bit of a challenge here, which is that it is, to some extent, an uncurated space. It is curated by you and so far as the people you follow. But there is no one making sure that that information has been fact-checked. It is uh, real information or it is information that uh, is somehow even directionally correct. So that's a huge challenge. Is there one social media platform that uh, is more likely to be providing access to misinformation than others? So I think that all social media platforms, and one of the things our study shows is that uh, these effects are persistent across all social media, so all in this case being sort of Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Reddit, um, Parler, etc. So across these wide range of social media, uh, these effects persist. Are there some that are worse than others? Uh, there are certainly some that um, have taken more action in recent days and, and, and weeks and months um, than others. So, for example, Facebook and Twitter have particularly recently begun to crack down on misinformation on their platforms. Uh, YouTube, on the other hand, uh, has not. So YouTube is, is uh, a real source of misinformation, can be a real source of misinformation. And if you want to find out anything about any conspiracy theory, YouTube is really a place to go. 
Okay, you're quoted as saying, I think people should be enormously concerned, quote-unquote, about the many COVID-19 conspiracy theories online. For many, though, Angus, the conspiracy originates with the personal feeling and uh, sense that governments, big corporations, globalists, are engaged in systematically erasing personal freedom. That's how, that's the fundamental concern that many have. And, and what do you do about that? So I think the two issues are, as you say, linked, but somewhat distinct. Uh, you can believe that uh, governments and large corporations have a set of interests that are not entirely aligned with your own. We live in a democracy. We hope that those who we elect will um, have our best interests in heart. Uh, but as uh, you know, anyone who follows Canadian politics regularly knows, that's not necessarily true at the federal level, at the provincial level, and for sure, large, large. Um, companies, including social media companies, do not necessarily have our best interests at heart. So that can be true. The problem is that, that that belief often leads people to begin to distrust everyone and every process. And that that sort of transfer of distrust can be quite dangerous. And um, I think that, that people do need something to trust, and they need some way of determining what is real and what is not. And I think one of the things that's been very interesting about particularly COVID-19 misinformation is that a lot of the information, um, the good, high-quality information is coming from peer-reviewed scientific studies that anyone can access. You can go on PubMed, which is the, the major kind of medical publication site, and you can review studies, and you can look for things like, okay, randomized controlled trial. You can, you can do that research yourself. And so uh, I think there are, uh, there's, there continue to be authorities and, and people and institutions we can trust. But, of course, a, a healthy dose of, dose of skepticism is warranted. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I look at COVID-19 and I look for the most contentious issues that today may surround the coronavirus, one might be uh, masks and, uh, and the other, I think, might be... Um, vaccine. Fair enough? Uh, yeah, those, those are two of them. Um, I think I would add a third, which is just this real minimization of the threat posed by COVID-19. A massive amount of the misinformation circulating online is that the number of cases is somehow consistent. The number of deaths is somehow consistent with previous years. This is just like the seasonal flu. And that, that minimizing of the severity of the pandemic in the face of all evidence is, is really quite pernicious. Uh, and immediately I get an email, great, Roy, supporting censorship, way to go. And I've been doing talk radio for 35 years now. If I supported censorship, I would have been out of business after three days. But it it really is, Angus, is it not about if you don't agree with me, you're wrong? So I think this is, this is an incredibly... Uh complicated issue and, and as, as you can see with that email uh, about censorship there is this this concern um, I think that the world is a little bit more complicated than pure freedom of speech versus everything else and one of the things our research really highlights and one of the unique challenges of social media is the ability of misinformation to spread incredibly quickly and affect people's attitudes and behaviors in a really dangerous way um, of course freedom of speech is also enormously important. But one of the things and one of the frames around this is whether or not you have freedom of speech, of course you can share your opinion. But whether or not these platforms should be amplifying your voice and spreading them out so widely when what you're saying is out of is inconsistent 
with the best scientific evidence of the day. And I say of the day because as as we've talked, or as, as you sort of mentioned in the in the lead-in, there has been contradictory messages about the masks. Um, as scientists, you update your perspective. You go, okay, there's a new study, there is new evidence. Now we're going to change our our behaviors as a response to that evidence, and that's the scientific method, and that's what's <laughs> given us incredible technology, including the radio show that we're on, including our our telephones, and and I think there needs to be a bit more trust in that scientific process and a little bit more humility from people who think that they have all the answers. Let me read you another email. Is uh, uh, what, what is virus mis- misinformation? Is it that one science says masks prevent spread of virus? There are very recent scientific studies that say no. Cherry-picking scientific results and censoring others, the ones you don't like, is not reasonable, and it doesn't demote the other studies to the realm of conspiracy theories. Peer review is no longer a valid uh, go-to because science has been corrupted to disallow valid studies to be published. Um, there are so many uh, opinions and and uh, in the middle of opinions that I sometimes find it difficult to to respond because I'm responding to component parts of an email. Now, let me ask you this, uh, and I'm just throwing that out there, Angus. What is the absolute fundamental takeaway from your study? Yeah, the fundamental uh, takeaway is that if you only get your news from social media or you primarily get your news from social media, you are going to be encountering misinformation on a regular basis. These companies uh, who run the social media platforms have made efforts to try and control misinformation on them, but the reality is that they're not entirely effective. So you will encounter misinformation. One of the things about repeatedly seeing this misinformation in these spaces is that it will either begin to cast a seed of doubt or will change your mind and produce misperceptions about the coronavirus. Ultimately, these misperceptions can be linked to to, uh, decreases in social distancing behaviors and unsafe practices that put yourself and fellow Canadians at risk. And I think drawing that link and, and thinking through that entire logic is really important. This is not a a call for censorship. This is not a study where um, there's a strong political agenda. This is saying, okay, we know that there is misinformation circulating on these platforms, and we know the end result is that people are um, refusing to social distance. Maybe they're not wearing masks. Maybe they're engaging in other unsafe practices. Maybe they're not washing their hands sufficiently. And collectively, that that puts uh, Canadians, and particularly Canadians with pre-existing health conditions, at real risk of... um, of uh, severe uh, health complications due to COVID-19. Uh, and that link, I think people need to be a, a little bit more generous to one another and think through that link in its entirety. Angus, thank you for the time. Uh, I'm going to take some phone calls from people on the issue of uh, social media and uh, and vaccine. So we'll see where it goes. I thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Ray. Angus Bridgman and uh, his study. Um, is coronavirus conspiracy spreading at alarming rates across Canada? Experts say that's the headline from Global News. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.